Uh, let me ask you a question. You're going to overeat uh, over this holiday weekend. Anybody overeat? Let me just raise your hand. Good. The rest of you are lying, and you will lie about other things we know as well. So I thought I'd do a little bit of uh, kind of information over this weekend so you can kind of keep things in check. Do you know what the correct term for gluten-free, sugarless, vegan brownies is? It's typically called compost. Do you know what Native Americans call a vegetarian? A bad hunter. For those of you who watch what you eat, here's the final word on nutrition and health. It's a relief to know that the truth after all these conflicting studies is finally coming out. Seems that the Japanese eat very little fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. The Mexicans eat a lot of fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. The Chinese drink very little red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. The Italians drink a lot of red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. The Germans drink a lot of beer, eat a lot of sausage and fat, and suffer fewer heart attacks than the Americans. The conclusion is, eat and drink what you like. Speaking English is apparently what kills you. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about the church and ask this question, would Jesus go to church. And as I thought about this title many, many months ago, I thought about my own personal experience. I grew up in a home where we went to church when it was convenient, and it wasn't always convenient to go. And I remember going and kind of feeling like I was drugged in there and wondering what, I don't get what the deal is all about. Why do people want to do this? And, and uh, as time went on, I was able to talk my way out of more and more of those Sundays that my parents participated in. I'm not sure how much they were there because they wanted to be there and how much they were there because they had done that in their past. It would be years later that my parents would both come to faith in Christ and, uh, and their life would be transformed. They would understand what it meant to study the Word of God. So for me, it was one of those redeeming moments. But uh, I went away to college and found Christ by simply reading the Word of God. And I, I thought about it for a while. I thought, well, do I really want to go to church? Because I didn't find Christ in church. I found Christ in the Word of God. And as I read the Word of God and studied the Word of God, I became convinced that the God of this Bible was a true God, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And and I remember being away at that university town thinking to myself, I guess I should go to church. And I wandered into this church and sat toward the back. And they were singing this song called Amazing Grace, which I had remembered hearing that sung in old westerns when they hung a guy. That was really my, my memory. I remember they hang a guy and they, they, the old parson comes out and, and they sing Amazing Grace. And I thought, well, this is kind of, kind of cool. It's kind of like an old Western. And I found myself starting to sing it with a sense of conviction that indeed it was Amazing Grace that did in fact save someone like me and transform me. And I began to set a pattern in my life. And as I thought about that pattern in my life, before I ever felt a call to ministry at all, I, I thought about that pattern in my life. Why is there a pattern of being in church? Is it, is it culture? Is it habit? And I realized it was something more. It was honor. 
that I was, I was living out a culture of honor, that I honored the Lord Jesus for he established the church. See, church is not established by man. It's not some creation invention of man. Oh, we do our, our part to certainly make it look like we want it to look and feel like we want it to look. But the church, the body of Christ, is a creation of Jesus Christ. That he died to establish it. And, you know, being a pastor for all these years, I've been able to do a lot of weddings. And there's one thing that is consistent in every wedding I've ever, ever done. Every bride is beautiful. There's something about it. I don't know what it is. And I don't mean that they all are, you know, should be on the cover. They're all models. I don't mean that. I mean there's something glowing and special about every bride, about every dress. And they're unique, and the cost of variance is great when it comes to weddings. When we lived on the East Coast, it was pretty amazing the way that they really kind of did weddings. There was just seemed to, seemingly no limit to how much a wedding uh, could, be, could be spent on a wedding. And they would start early and they would go late, and it was pretty amazing. I remember going to the, our first New Jersey wedding, and it's kind of everything you can imagine it to be. And we got there, and I looked around, and the the, the, the expense and the extravagance was amazing and the ice sculptures and, and, and then they would bring back, a, open up a big door and, and here would be dessert and I'm going, this is like heaven. This is amazing and that was before the wedding. That was before the wedding. And I went in and I began to do this ceremony for this bride and everything I had just seen was eclipsed by that one moment when the bride walked in. And I always like to look at the guy. The guy doesn't cry, don't marry him. <laughs> if he can't cry in that moment, he will never cry. They always cry, by the way. I looked over at him, and I, and I began to watch him, and I watched her, and I watched him, and I watched her, and I watched him, and I realized what that is is a picture. See, the man in a wedding is a picture of Christ. And it's Christ looking at his bride. And that bride is a picture of the church. And as Christ looks at his bride, he says, I have never seen an ugly bride. The bride in all of her glory and all of her beauty comes down that aisle, walks up those steps, declares herself to be faithful to one. The king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are the church. We are the body, the bride of Christ. And even when we have our shortcomings, and we do as individuals and as corporate bodies, we are still the bride. And Jesus still embraces us as the bride. You see, the church is the redemptive plan for mankind. When God said, how am I going to redeem man? How am I going to save man? He didn't do it by a fishing boat looking at nature. Nothing wrong with that. Guys, great. Go fishing and find God and love God in that setting. But that's not how he redeemed mankind. He redeemed it by his blood and he established the church because the church 
is a door of hope. You know, when you, when you think back over your life, you think about those moments that are transformational as you're, when you're a pastor. And you think about all the lives that are changed. I can look out into your faces and I know a lot of the stories. And I know the stories of how you've been down and how you've been up. How you've been sick and now you've been made well and how you've been hurt and now you've been made healthy and some of you are in transition, you're still hurting and you're still unhealthy and you're still looking and challenging every day to live out that life of Christ. And I see it. I see the hope. What is it keeps us going? It is the church is the hope. It is the doorway that allows us in to say this is what it's all about. This is why we come together. Now, we have live stream going on, and it, it streams our message and this message around the world. But it's not the same. There's something about looking over and seeing someone weep, struggle, worry, rejoice, laugh, that makes it all real, that makes it really powerful. We need to be in community. We need to be together. And we do it because we develop a culture of, of honor with one another and before the Lord. You see, the church is the expression of the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God is far bigger than the church. It is the power and the authority and the reign of God. But you see, when we express that kingdom, we express it through this, this physical body called the temple of the living God. We are the body of Christ. And when people encounter us, they're encountering to whatever degree you're releasing the kingdom through us. What we want to do is we want to become transparent so that people see the God in us. Amen? We want to see, be transforming people wherever we go. We were, uh, we were away this week at a conference and it was pretty intense. It was from 10 in the morning till 10 at night. And it was on healing, and it was great. It was a great experience. And by Thursday, after putting in four of those 12-hour days, we needed a break. We said, let's just get in the car. Let's take, we, you know, we can't take in another 12-hour day today. Let's get in the car. We're going to drive up, and we're going to just see a few sights, and we're going to go out to dinner. And we went out to dinner, and we're sitting there, and the gal comes up, and the first thing she says, you're not from up here, are you? And you, know, you wonder kind of what's giving it away. And I, we say, well, why do you say that? Well, you don't look like you're from here. Where do we look like? I don't know, San Diego or maybe L.A. Well, we're kind of, we're the baloney right in between those two pieces of bread, right? <laughs> and then we began to talk on the spiritual level and began to relate. There was something that connected us to her and it was in the spiritual realm. It was that the Holy Spirit in her and the Holy Spirit in us. And you've probably had those experiences where you go, I just think that person's a Christian. Well, how do you know? I don't know. There's something in my spirit that bears witness that we are somehow in tune with this. I want to take you to the book of Colossians, and I want to walk you through this. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start looking at verse 13. I want to walk you through a very critically important portion of Scripture that talks about what God has done in us and through us and for us. In verse 13, it says this, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Now just stop right now and think about that. 
Imagine what it's like to be delivered. You're, you're surrounded by darkness. You're surrounded by evil. And what does God do? It's like he reaches down, he picks you up, and he conveys you, he puts you into the kingdom of his son. You're taken out of that. In other words, well, you say, well, I'm still in the world. Yes, you are, but now you're in the kingdom of God. Look at what that scripture says. He has conveyed us or transferred us to the kingdom of his son, the son of his love. And that word kingdom literally means the king's domain. When you give your life to Christ, what God is doing is he's moving you into the king's domain. You're now a resident. You're now a part of what God does in his rule in his kingdom. And it says, in whom we have redemption. Now, how do we, how do we find salvation? That's really what it's trying to say. We, we find it through his blood. You see, salvation doesn't come because we're good. It doesn't come because we do a ritual like baptism or Lord's Supper, communion. It happens because we come and we connect with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the blood that cleanses us from all of our sin. That should be good news for you because you have plenty of sin in your life, amen? Right? I mean, do you ever struggle with stuff? Do you know that everything you struggle with Jesus died for? Every hurt you have, he died for. Every fear you have, he died for. Every discouraging moment, he died for. Even your health, he died for. It says, by his stripes are we healed. That his death on that cross did more than just get us to heaven one day. That it transformed our life and it took away the guilt and the memory and the condemnation that's associated with sin. And then it says, he is the image of the invisible God. You see, God the Father is spirit, so we can't see God the Father, but Jesus is the image of that invisible God. That's why he could say to Peter when they said, show us the Father and that'll be enough. He said, have I been with you so long? You don't know me, Peter. He who's seen me has seen the Father. And he wanted him to understand something about how do we, how do we put our arms around God who is spirit? You do it in the person of Jesus Christ. He who's seen me has seen the Spirit. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now look at this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now what's interesting about that is it says that when God was doing creating, he was creating things in heaven. We don't think about things being created in heaven. We think about things being created on earth. Well, one thing we do know that God created in heaven, or let's say outside of this realm of, uh, of existence that we know, is angelic beings, spiritual beings. We don't know exactly how many. We know there, there are millions upon millions, apparently. We know that God created universes and, and never stops creating. It says there's an ever-expanding worlds to come. And that it says of Jesus, of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. So what that tells me is that those increasing worlds that God has created, which, by the way, science figured that out a few years ago, even though John spoke about it 2,000 years ago, that there would be an expanding universe and new worlds coming all the time, that there would also be a need for government in those expanding worlds. You see, of the increase of his government, no end. So what does he do? He's always ruling, always reigning. And the church of Jesus Christ, you say, why do we go through these struggles? Why are we here? Why don't we just, you know, the minute we get saved, just get out of here. 
because that's not the purpose. The goal is not to get there as fast as you can, right? Every once in a while I hear people say, well, you know, I'm just ready to go. And I said, really, if there was a bus out front and it said, heaven today, would you get on it? Oh, yes, I would. Oh, yeah, I, I bet you would. You'd be shaking. You'd be crying like a schoolgirl. I'm not getting on today. I got so much living I want to do. Uh, don't make me go. No, don't push me. Don't push me. I don't have any money to go. No, you see, the thing is that, yeah, we want to do that. But you see, there's a purpose. Do you realize this? Now, I want you to lock into this thought right now. Everything that you as a believer endures and goes through today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life is preparing you, listen carefully, is preparing you for your queenly role of ruling and reigning with Christ for all eternity. Everything you do, everything the church endures, which you are, is preparing you to rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. Jesus said, he who overcomes will I grant to sit with me on my throne. I don't know if the weight of that really grasps you right now. And the, and the depth of that really can, we can even understand. But God is working at work in us because he has responsibilities for us in the days ahead, in the future. I don't know if it means managing some of these worlds to come. You see, God never redeemed angels. See, angels aren't made in the image of God. They're not, Jesus didn't die on the cross for them. They don't have any authority beyond the authority they have now, but we do. Jesus in his ascension, what does he say to his disciples as he leaves? All power and all authority is given unto me. Now you go in that power and that authority. All power, all authority, that's a lot. Think about it. I go in the authority and the power of Jesus himself. Up until now, you asked nothing in my name. Ask that your joy may be made full. When they were concerned about his leaving, he said, greater things will you do than I do because I go to be with the Father. You see what he puts on us? Responsibility, power, and authority. Now, it says, for by him all things were created, verse 16, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. God created invisible things. Well, how do we see them? Spiritual eyes. Spiritual eyes. Thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. You know what God's telling us there? That's a hierarchy within the spiritual realm. All things were created through him and for him. Now watch this. He is before all things. So whatever was created, Jesus is before all things because he is God of very God. He is the head of the body, the church. So who's our head? It's not me, it's Jesus. It's not somebody who's elected to an office in some denomination. It's some, not someone who has the best uniform, the best outfit, the highest honor. It is Jesus Christ who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, this is what life is gonna be like. Oh, there are people that were physically resurrected or revived but he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, think about Jesus in this resurrected state. I mean, this is kind of a prototype for us. Got it? Th Here are the disciples. They're hiding. They're gathered in that upper room. 
All of a sudden, Jesus passes through the wall. I mean, is that enough to make you believe? I don't know how he can pass through a wall, eat a fish, and it not fall on the ground. They knew him on the road of Emmaus, Luke 24, and yet they didn't know him. There was something familiar about him, and it says, then he opened their eyes so they could see. So there's something about this resurrected body that is the same but different. You see, Jesus is not subject to time or space. So Jesus can walk through a wall because he can walk through a wall before the wall existed. I could say to you, I could walk through that wall, and you say, no, you can't. I said, I can't. I can walk through that wall in the year 2000. If time is not an issue for me, then walking through that wall is simple. If time is an issue, then I can't walk through the wall because I'm constrained by living in the year 2014. Distance becomes a problem because why? I'm limited by how fast I can run or how fast I can travel. But if time and space are not issues, then all the bets are off. So we see here, in this Jesus, it says he is before all things. He is the firstborn from the dead. That's what we're going to be like. That in him, all things, he might have the preeminence. So who needs to get the credit for everything? Jesus. Jesus. You ever been tempted to take credit for something you didn't do? I do that all the time. (laughs) Now, I said I think about it. I don't say I do it. I do it some of the time, but most of the time I just think about it. Somebody says, oh, yeah, that's really great. And, you know, like the other day, someone uh, left a gift in our car for my wife. And, uh, and it was Mother's Day. Well, you know, I'm thinking, this is good. She, you know, she opened up the card. It's a dress, and, and there's, it's not signed. The card's not signed. She goes, did you do this? I didn't say yes. I didn't say no. <laughs> you know, just kind of gave her the wink. I love you. You know what I'm talking about? I'm thinking, can I really get away with this? <laughs> can I pull this one off in this moment? You know, and she goes, I can't believe you did this. Did you do this? And I didn't want to lie, but I didn't want to tell the truth. You ever been there? I just want to go in between, you know, and everything's better in between, you know. And uh, so finally, you know, a couple hours go on and she takes the card and she, there's a little page inside the card. She thought it was the back page. She turned it over and there is the rest of the message and the person who gave her the dress. (laughs) Busted right there. How about those anonymous gifts that come? You ever want to take credit for those? How about when someone says, hey, you did a great job? How about this one? This is the worst one. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, would you pray for me? And you go, yeah. Two weeks go by, they come up and they thank you. Hey, I want to thank you for praying for me. And you go, dang, I forgot to pray, but I'm not going to tell them. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm a powerhouse. (laughs) Comes to prayer, there's just no limit to what I can do. You know, I mean, that's what you're thinking. Well, I thought, God, God, I thought about prayer a little bit, kind of, and I I remember it now. No, he needs to have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father in him that all the fullness should dwell and by him reconcile all things to himself. Everything in your life he wants to bring into reconciliation. All the hurts and all the things that just don't seem to be working right, he wants to bring all of those together to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let me talk to you a little bit about the king's domain, the rule of the king in our life. You see, the domain of that is heaven and earth. He's told us that already. It's past and it's present and it's future. It's really eternal. So all of creation is under his domain, whether it's visible or invisible. 
He told his disciples on one occasion, he said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, he used a plural there. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a key to the kingdom. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. First key to that kingdom is what we call the salvation key. It gets you in the door. Imagine if you had a new home and someone gave you the key and, and gave you an envelope. And you opened the front door and, and you thought, wow, this is a great home, I love it. And then you go to the kitchen and it's locked. Then you go to the bedroom and it's locked, the bathrooms are locked. And then you get on your phone and you begin to yell and scream at that realtor and saying, you know, I don't know what you're doing here, but there's a door locked in every room. All I could get in was the front door. And the realtor says, just relax, look in the envelope. Reach down in that envelope and there is a key for every door. You see, you had the keys all along. You just didn't know you had them. And one by one, you take a key out and you try the door and you realize that when you unlock that door, it opens up a whole other world to you. A room where you could go into the library and you can read and study and you can glean wisdom. Another one where you can go in and feed and banquet on what God has prepared. Another one where you go in and you find rest. You see, there are keys to the kingdom. You have them, and God gave you the envelope. It's called your heart. You have to reach into your heart and say, what key do I need today? I need the key of wisdom, and you go into the library. I need to rest. I need a peace that passes all understanding, and I go into the, to the bedroom. Oh, I need to sit at the banquet table of God and feast on his riches, and you go into the kitchen, and you dine there with God. I just need to meditate and think, and you go into that room where it's quiet and peaceful, and you find God. And I really do believe, because he didn't say you have five keys or eight keys, I believe the number of keys is without limit. I don't think there's any limitations God puts on the number of keys he will give you, because you see, you can go into the kitchen, and then you can go in to the deeper part of that kitchen and then further into that kitchen and you find greater and richer food the deeper you go into God and you find God and you long for God and you starve for God. You see, the church is given this appetite for the impossible. Have you ever stopped to think about what God does? He says, I ask all things, all things and nothing shall be impossible for you. He put that into our spiritual DNA, an appetite for the impossible in, in this world and in our life. What would happen if I would just begin to believe God for something? What would begin if I would begin to move? You see, because the way you spill faith is risk. Am I willing to risk something for God? Am I willing to step out and say, God will, and I'm going to show you how God will do that? Luke chapter 12 and verse 32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Who's, he's going to give us the kingdom. It's my good pleasure. I like to do that. I, I want to do that. I want to give it to you. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27, it says, Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All the dominions shall serve and obey him. Did you see what he said there in Daniel? 
It's the same thing Jesus said in Luke 12, 32. He said, and the kingdom and the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under heaven shall be given. Shall be given. You know, guys always get a little discouraged when they think about heaven because they think it's sitting around with a harp, you know, a couple of wings, floating around, you know, you know, singing kumbaya to Jesus all day long. And you go, you know what, that's not it. I, I just don't think that's it. It's not for me. Any fishing, any hunting. You know, a little skeet shooting maybe. If we can't kill anything, can we skeet? And this is what you hear from guys all the time. Think about this, guys. God has a purpose and a task greater than the purpose and the task you have here on planet Earth right now. Why would God give you any less? The spiritual domain and the spiritual kingdom of God is never, never grows from greater to lesser. It always goes from lesser to greater. Even the Old Testament, you take the Old Testament, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to bring it to fulfillment. I came to put higher demands on you. Why, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, and I say unto you, don't hate. You've heard, don't commit adultery, I say, don't lust. See, Jesus always puts higher demands, and so when you come in responsibility, the kingdom will always have greater responsibility than what you have now. Let's look at the head of the church. The battle that we're in is a battle of heaven and earth, whether you know it or not. It's not a battle with who you work with and who you live next door to, and though my neighbors are here and we love them. Um, but the disciples came and they said, they said this among themselves, they were debating who will be the greatest in the kingdom. You ever heard that discussion? You ever heard two people sit down and say, you know, I think I'd like to be the greatest in the kingdom? You know what's interesting about that story is Jesus did not condemn them for the discussion. He didn't say, you bunch of puny-minded, sinful guys, don't be talking about who's to be the greatest kingdom. You know what he did? He showed them how to be great in the kingdom. And he brought a child over. And he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, that's not a problem. But you must be like a little child. Now think about how Jesus approached people. He gave them permission to be great in the eternal kingdom, but he showed them how instead of condemning them for what they were thinking or what they were doing. Jesus had a curious effect over those whom he encountered. In John chapter 6 and verse 63, it says, The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. That's curious. You can read over that and miss it. The words that I speak to you, they're spirit. They're not just words. And they've got something, they've got an intrinsic quality of life about them. He was saying my words have a, have a power. There's a power of the presence of God with my words. When you speak out the word of God, it is spirit and it is life. The words of God were not meant primarily for understanding, but for life. That's why people without the Spirit of God have a hard time understanding the Word of God. Because they think it's about mastering its contents, and it's really, it's about engaging with His person. When I read these words, I, I'm looking for Spirit and life. His words are deeper than my thoughts, any of my thoughts. His words enter into the very root of life. 
Because God, when he created man, he was, not, he was just, a, just a, a physical being until he spoke life. He spoke the word into him. It says he gave him the spirit, the ruach, the breath of life. And when he did, he realized that there was something unique about this. There's something unique about man. That his words contain the life itself. And then he said, "May I want my words to abide in you. When they abide in you, they will be spirit and life. You see, what is in you will be felt by those who are around you. What is in you will be felt by those who are around you. If there is in you anger, it will be felt by those around you. If there is life, it will be felt by those who are around you. And if they are not aware of that, then you have to increase the dosage of the words for they are spirit and they are life. You see, we are the dwelling place of God on earth. Remember what God said and what God did. In the physical world, we get hungry when we don't eat, but in the spiritual world, hunger increases the more we eat. It's just the opposite. I eat physically, and I say, oh, I can't eat anymore. I read the Word of God, and I get hungrier, and my taste buds increase, and my ability to discern the different composition of the food becomes even greater, and I understand what God is doing. So when I read His words, that activates the power of God in my life. You see, his history is a history of miracles. They validate his character. This is really important. I want you to think about this because in the middle of a crisis, in a difficulty, in a struggle, you will say, I hope God comes through. And I would ask you, historically, has God come through? We have a whole book that gives us a history of God validating his character. What I said I will do, I will do, you do not have to even ask the question anymore. In fact, when you ask the question, you're stepping back in faith and you're stepping out of the realm of history and you're going into fantasy because fantasy says God is not going to work today. No, God wants to work in a greater way because you are the church and he's shaping you for your eternal weight and glory. Like we like to say around here, you can be in the middle of a miracle and you can, can you finish it for me? And not know it. You see, you can be living out this miracle of God and not aware of what a miracle it is for you to be where you are. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4 says, you have been, giving, been given his great and, and precious promises. So here's what he says. You, every one of you, you've been given his exceeding and great promises. Now, what are you going to do with them? I've got them. Am I just going to keep the keys locked away in the envelope? Or am I going to start on opening some doors, seeing what God can do? It says that through these, what? These promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. I partake of the very nature of God. The more I do that, the more my DNA is shaped by him. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 that we can have the mind of Christ. You can literally begin to think the way that God thinks. 
But you have to stop thinking the way you think long enough to let him get in your head. Amen? Are you all here? This is heavy stuff, right? Uh, you got to think about it a little bit. Having escaped, now listen to this, this confirms what we read earlier. Remember, transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. It says here in, in 2 Timothy, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I've escaped. Well, what if I sneak back in? People try. I like that. I'm going to sneak back into the darkness. And they get in the darkness and go, it doesn't feel as good anymore. Why? Because you have a new nature. The new nature has transformed you. Let me give you a couple of life applications. Here's the first one. You have divine influence. Use it. Use it. Use it for your good, for your family, for your community, at job, wherever you are, at school. And, and think about this. You are God's plan for changing the world. See, what's God's plan for changing the world? You are. You are. Imagine a strategy session. You brought in the top people from around the world. You want to get a single message out to the entire world and so the strategist says to you, I think what I'd like to do is assemble 12 common men, one of whom will betray me. That's my plan. And my job is going to be to convince them not to be afraid. Even though they're going to deny me in my death and forsake me in the garden when I'm praying out and seeking power, that's my plan. And the strategists are saying to you, you know, I think you need a new plan. except you underestimate the power of one man, one woman, one boy, one girl with the Holy Spirit. And when that spirit is unleashed, it becomes unstoppable. 83,000 new people come to faith in Christ, they estimate, on a daily basis worldwide. 1900, there were two Protestant churches in South Korea. Today, there are over 7,000. The largest church in the world is in South Korea, well over a million members. How'd that happen? Happened by the strategy of the 12th. That's how it happened. 19th century, there are about 3% Christians in Africa. Today, that's about 63% Christians in Africa. Think about that. 10% of the population of India right now are Christians. 100 years ago, it was less than 1%. Indonesia, the most Muslim country in the world, according to the stats, now has a 15% Christian population. The government stopped publishing those stats because it was getting embarrassing. See, God is doing something. The question is, are you going to be participating with him in this great transformational moment called the church? Because that's what it is. It's a moment. Church is a moment. It is a moment of training. It is a moment of opportunity. It is a moment to prepare us for our eternal weight of glory. And every time I say, I've got something more important to do, or every time I just bow out and say, oh, that was boring, I miss out on the training moment that God has for me. 
and the community that God wants to chisel into my life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, as we pray, we, uh, we do stand before you right now, God, and, and we, as the church, have heard a lot of great truths from your word, many of whom we just have to go home and think about. We have to process. But one thing we can do, it's very simple, is we can reach into the envelope and we can pull out a key and say, God, I don't know what this key to the kingdom does, but I want to unlock that door. I want to enter in to that library, to that dining hall, to that bedroom, whatever I need, God, I need another key. And I know, God, when I open that door, that room is filled with a dozen more doors. And in that envelope called my heart, there are more keys. I want to ask you this morning, would you reach into that heart of yours? Would you pull out another key to the kingdom and say, God, take me deeper, take me further. God, I want to live out this honor, honoring God. Because God, there are some things that are just, uh, what I look at as just being a disaster, a discouragement, or a ruin that are really precious. That, God, you want to take the, the buildings that have been broken down and raise them again. You want to take the life that's been hurt and you want to bring about a second chance. You want to do something special and that's what church does. That's what communion does. So, Father, as we listen to this music and as we share in communion in every corner of this building today, God, may we as a church be encouraged by your life in us. As we just worship and praise the Lord, would you just make your way to communion if you so will and maybe you just want to stand where you are and pray but allow the Lord to just begin to work in you right now as we just seek him